I want you to think for a moment about your map. Your map is something that everyone in this room has, uh, whether you sort of consciously think about it or not. And I'm not talking about ink on paper or a pixel on a screen. I'm talking about a map of your mind. And what happens is this. We navigate familiar settings without even thinking about it. So you are in relationships. You are on the job. You are... Uh, just going about your tasks and you, you navigate those things kind of, you know, subconsciously. You're just kind of moving about. But when you get into a new situation, you're still forced to navigate. You're still forced to make directional changes in relationships and conversation and what you should say, what you shouldn't say. And there's sort of a, a map of the mind. You think about how people talk. And they say this sometimes when recounting their own personal history. They might say this, that, you know, uh, there was a season right out of high school where I got kind of lost, right? And then someone else might be recounting their personal history and say, you know, after my divorce, I didn't know where to turn. These are, these are language um, cues that say we have this map of the mind that, that guides us, that we navigate by whether we think about it or not. Think about maps for a minute. Maps show the big picture and sort of where you are in it. Maps help you get back on course when you get lost, and they also keep you from getting lost in the first place. And sort of forward-looking, maps help you get to where you want to go. I'm talking about maps this morning because someone once described sound doctrine, catch this, sound doctrine as a map for the mind. That if you have sound doctrine, that that becomes a map for your mind. Neighborhood Bible Church endeavors to do the very important work of teaching what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Titus chapter 2 verse 1 tells us to do this. We do this because the scriptures tell us to do it, but here's the residual side effect of this. The residual side effect of teaching sound doctrine at this church is it equips the believer so that they can live a God-pleasing life. They can know the direction to go by, by grabbing hold of this wealth of information that they intuitively know because they've been soaked in and trained in sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? One person gave this definition. I like it. It's the summary of a Bible's teaching on some particular subject that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. So sound doctrine is not just an archive of information that we keep storing and filing away sometime for a rainy day. Rather, it is information in action. So it allows for the Christian to make directional, navigational decisions when they are faced with temptation, when they are faced with a wisdom decision, when they are faced with a, a confrontation or a joy. They're able to filter it through this and think it through. Here's some of the things that sound doctrine deal with. Who is God and what is he like? And that is a really, really important answer to come up with. And to discern. How about this? Who am I? Where did I come from? And am I functioning properly? Am I functioning properly? Am I functioning as God would have me function? Here's one more. What's wrong with this world? Some of you are asking that this week. You come into church this week just going, what is wrong with this world? 
And what is God doing to fix it? These are doctrinal type issues, and the Bible speaks to these things. I'm starting with maps and sound doctrine because of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Look at me for a minute. This passage we're looking at is so incredibly rich with terms, doctrinal ideas, and glorious truths that we're spending two weeks on it. When I was mapping this out at the very beginning, I said, man, Romans 3, 21 to 31, we're going to take two passes at this. It's like two coats of paint. We're going to bring the color out by just going over this a second time. So last week, Kel preached on this. This week, I'm preaching on this. This is good for Bible study, by the way. Some of you are on a reading plan. I love reading plans. I'm all about reading plans. But there are times you need to hit pause on the reading plan and go, wait a minute, I just need to soak in this truth right now. God, you are speaking to me right now from your word into my life circumstances. I'm going to camp out on this and just meditate and chew on this and sort of, and sort of, uh, get, get what's coming to me from this passage. I hope this morning does something for some of you. I hope it whets your appetite for this passage of scripture such that you will come back here on your own time and time again. There's no possible way we could get to just the terms that are introduced and ideas that are here. Um, the songs that we're singing this morning, Rob and I had a very hard time putting together a set list because so many songs quote from this passage. We sing directly from this passage all the time. We're spending this time to fix it in our mind map of sound doctrine. Think about Paul for a minute. Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, is a man, was a man, just like us. He had a mind map himself, and one day it was dramatically altered. He had an idea about what God was like, what he was up to, what he was passionate about, and in one instant, his life was altered. He heard the warning and the invitation of the gospel, he believed it, and he changed course. That is the testimony of many, many people sitting in this room this morning. You were rebellious to God, either in a religious righteous setting or in a pagan party setting. You heard the gospel from someone. You heeded the warning and accepted the invitation through belief. And now your life is hidden in Christ. Right? Does this sound familiar? That's, that is the Christian testimony. Here's the big difference with Paul. Paul was led to Christ by the risen Christ. Pretty cool, huh? (laughs) Paul was led to Jesus by Jesus himself, and it so completely altered his life that he began to do things completely differently. And this letter that we look at, called the Book of Romans in our Bible, is sort of his his you know his grand finale. It is it is such a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, Romans chapter three is where we should turn to. We're calling this Colossal Truth because he's laying out truth with a capital T. Truth that affects you, whether you trip over it and get annoyed, or whether it alters the course of your life and you build your life on the foundation that this truth is. That's why it's colossal. It affects all people for all of time. Paul sort of does something with this letter that's interesting. 
He sort of lets us peek at the glorious truth that he's going to get through throughout the rest of the book, which is this righteousness of God that's been revealed to us and is available to us. And he lets us peek at it in Romans 1.16. It's sort of a little glimpse. And here's what he says, just by, by way of review. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He lets us peek at it, and then he goes on this long two-chapter, two-and-a-half-chapter journey trudging through man's sin. One of the things I love to do as a college pastor and youth pastor was to take students up to Yosemite, Yosemite National Park. And international students all had two things on their list. They would land in America, and I'd say, you're in America, what do you want to do? And they'd say, we want to go to Disneyland, and we want to see Yosemite. Like, those were the two things that sort of made the, the top list of almost everyone, and walk the Golden Gate Bridge was sort of a distant third. So we would do these things, right? We live close by, so I would take students up to Yosemite, and it was so great because on the drive up, they would sort of, you know, we'd sort of be wandering through the woods, and 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 there would be times where we'd pull over, and they'd get a little tiny glimpse. There's, you know, there's Yosemite, there's Half Dome, or there's something. So we'd pull over at the turnout. I'd let them take pictures. They'd get out. They'd just think it's just this phenomenal thing. And I just sort of had this little secret going on in my life where I'm like, you guys just have no idea. Like you're just getting the outer glimpses of this. And then we would go a little bit further, and and I knew they were going to see the light one day, and some of you have been here. This is the light at the end of the tunnel, right? This is called Tunnel View at Yosemite. And you pull out of this highway, and there's a little parking lot, and this is the view that you are, are met with. And so students would just be blown way they would get out and all of a sudden like I don't think they ever looked at those early pictures right those those meant nothing because they suddenly had this this grand view of things this is what Paul does with Romans Romans 1 16 to 17 sort of gives us this little peek there's half dome right and then we get to Romans 3 21 to 31 and this is Romans 3 21 to 31 People come back here time and time and time again. Because not only do you get sort of, you know, El Capitan there and Bridal Veil Falls and Cathedral Rocks and Half Dome framing it all, but then you get to go enter into it and you can explore. I mean, I could explore for a lifetime at Yosemite and not get bored of it. Romans 3, 21 to 31, I want to impress on your mind, is the Yosemite Valley. I know it's been called the Mount Everest of Scripture by someone named Luther, I think. Um, but we'll kind of localize that and call it the Yosemite Valley of Scripture. It is something to come back to time and time again. This huge transition occurs in verse 21, and it is the words, but now. And but now is sort of a, a rail switch in the train yard. It's a tiny little uh, word phrase. It's two words in the Greek. And it and it's a tiny little thing, but it's a massive shift in what goes on. And Paul employs but now a few times in Romans, and every time there's dark gloom and sadness, and then this glorious thing that comes flooding into the darkness that God has done in response to that. So but now is just such a key phrase. We've been in wrath 
And it sort of is the right thing to be in because that's where he starts. And then guilt is what we feel. And but now transports us from all this ruin to the word redemption. And it says this. It says the track that you are on is not the only track in life. It is not the end of the line. You are not stuck just in the rails of this life that you seem to be heading on, but now alters your journey forever through redemption. By quick way of review, the first part of Romans we called ruin, and built into this idea of ruin is this question, are you in? Paul's getting at this. Are you in tight with God? Remember from several weeks back, you've been banished from Hawaii, you've been punished to Australia, the land of convicts, and you have to swim there. Are you in, says this, there's a lifeboat that comes along, it's Jesus, and he invites you to get in the lifeboat and says, everyone else, every one of you will perish, no matter how good of a swimmer you are, you will be, you will perish sooner or later, and it doesn't matter how you are in compared to other people, you're in the boat or you're out. This is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you in? Paul took great pains to talk about the law. He took great pains to this because he was talking to a religious a religiously literate crowd. Those who would have put most stock in the idea that they've somehow kept the law or know the law or had possession of the law by birthright of being an Israelite. And he takes great pains to say this, the law can show you your dirty face, but it has no power to clean your face. Right? Isn't that true of the law? The law holds up a mirror and says, you envy but it has zero power to keep you from envying, and it certainly has no power to erase the envy that has already gone on in your heart of hearts. So that's what he's showing for a couple of chapters. All are ruined unless, unless God steps in. And Romans 3.21 is that wind shift that says, but now, and it's God stepping in. C.A. Spurgeon was a preacher in the, in, in, uh, England, long time ago. You may have heard of him. He was asked at one point, hey, could you sum up your Christian faith in a few words? He says, I only need four words. Here's the Christian faith in four words. Here it is. Jesus died for me. He said, that sums it up. Every other religion and culture view life with God in this way. Ready? It involves this idea of here is my resume. And I should get in because of what is on my resume that would qualify me and what isn't on my resume that would somehow disqualify me. The colossal truth that Paul is laying out in all its glorious detail is this. For the first and only time in history, Jesus comes along and offers something and explains something completely and utterly different than that. He comes along and establishes this truth, that with his own blood, not the blood of goats or calves, he enters the most holy place once and for all to secure your freedom and forgiveness forever. 
It's a divine righteousness that's not only revealed, but given to us, gifted, free of charge. And no one else offers that. You can hunt for this. All non-Christian religions say, present an offering, submit a a resume, and then anxiously wait and hope and say, gee, I hope that I have enough on there, and I hope that certain parts of my resume get overlooked because I really don't want that part being weighed against me, but I think my good mostly outweighs the bad. But perfection is what a holy, just God requires. And what you know and I know and everyone you ever meet knows is this. Heaven isn't just for good people. It's for perfect people. And people aren't perfect. I do not need to convince you or any person on this planet that they're not perfect. That's never the argument. The argument always comes back to, am I good enough? Am I better than so-and-so? At least I'm not X, Y, Z. Surely God would. Heaven's not for good people. It's for perfect people. Enter Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. Jesus is. Last bit on the intro. Here it is. There's some really bad news. Nothing you've ever done is good enough to get you into heaven. That's the bad news. There's a little bit of good news here, and that's this. There's nothing you've ever done that's so bad that it will permanently keep you out of heaven. Here's the really great news. That God has done everything needed to welcome you into heaven. That's the bad, good, great news of the Bible. Now, let's read. I'm just going to read uh, 3, 21 to 26, and you can follow along with me. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What I want to do with our time this morning is this. I want to show you five things, and you can write them and kind of follow along, five things that sort of highlight and round out the picture of this righteousness of God that's not only been manifested, it's not only been revealed to us, but it's been gifted to us if we receive it by faith. Before we get to the first one, let me just say this, that the words righteousness and justify are really heavy in this passage. You'll just see those two words kind of going going on in this passage. And what these two words kind of collectively mean is this. They include pardon and forgiveness, but they're, they're vastly more than that. Think about this. If Haley were to wrong me for some reason, and I know you wouldn't intentionally do it. It must have been an accident, Haley. But Haley has wronged me, and then Haley comes to me, and she asks for my forgiveness. Am I able to forgive Haley, yes or no? Yes, Absolutely. But catch this, am I able to justify Haley? No. 
I can't take the wrong that she's done and make her right. I cannot and you cannot. God can. God can make people righteous. Other people cannot be uh, make the other person righteous, even if they're the offended party. Why? Because all sin ultimately is against God. So being righteous, being made righteous or being justified is a God-only job. Is there pardon and is there forgiveness wrapped up in Romans 3, 21 to 31? Absolutely. We sing about pardon. We sing about forgiveness. But it's vastly more than that. Now, Haley, despite her sin, is able to be viewed as utterly righteous and utterly justified. And this passage seeks to give some understanding as to why that possibly can be true. So let's dive in. God's righteousness... Revealed to us and offered to us. Number one, it is apart from the law. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Here's what this means in short terms. There is no moral achievement of mine that depends on whether I'm righteous in God's sight or not. not. When you get this, you let out a giant collective, phew! And that is such good news. Because it's exhausting to try. And then once you realize there's no possible way you could hold up perfection, it's exhausting to try to put on a show that you can. No moral achievement is factored in to whether I'm viewed as righteous or not before God. That is revolutionary in all of history. He makes this point that the righteousness of God and the law are not against one another. In fact, rightly understood, what happened was in the Reformation, remember, it's, it's by, by, by faith alone, by, by grace alone through faith. And the Reformation sort of tilted the scale a little bit to go completely against the law and the prophets. And Paul in this passage actually brings balance to that says, the law and the prophets, rightly understood, shine a light. They bear witness to this. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It highlights God's holiness and righteousness to see the law and the prophets. The law also, according to Galatians, is like a schoolmaster. It's leading you to Jesus Christ. It's leading you by the hand to say, do you see by the law there's no way you can live up to this? We all have this weird fleshly thing. It's the broken part of the curse that says, I think I'm a good person. I really do. And we're wrong. (laughs) Law just says, let me show you, you are not a good person. And if you walk just through the Ten Commandments and you're honest with yourself, you would agree with me. If you need a little bit of exposition on the Ten Commandments, go read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus talking about the Ten Commandments, lest you think that you've kept them all. The law is a schoolmaster leading us to a place on our knees, empty-handed, say, God, who will save me from this wretched man that I am? And that's where salvation comes in. Here's a prayer that may be helpful for you. God, let me never despair at my lack of law-keeping, nor become proud in my law-keeping. You go down the law resume road, it will lead to despair 
or it will be lead to pride that will blind you. Here's number two. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Faith is, is even bigger in terms of number than righteousness or justify in this passage. Nine times in these ten verses, we read by faith, through faith, or believe. And for the very first time in Romans, Paul is now introducing the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And this matters because faith for faith's sake means nothing. The object of your faith means everything. Think about the mood of our culture and see if you agree with me on this. I think there is a mood in our culture, and it's been brewing for a long time, that says this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. This is utter nonsense. You're in a shipwreck. One person says, I believe that this life boat will float. Another person says, grabs on to the anchor of the ship and says, this is the anchor of my soul. And the person in the lifeboat says, well, as long as you believe it with all of your heart, it must be true for you. Glub, 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 bye-bye. Right? The object of your faith is what matters. Not that you have faith. That is an utter nonsensical statement to just say, as long as you have faith. We don't live that way in any other setting. There was a missionary trying to translate this very passage. He was trying to understand, how can I translate the word believe? What does that mean? How can I communicate this idea of faith or belief? And the way that the scriptures translated into this native language now reads is this. You ready? It's rendered to put your whole weight on it, like a chair. He, he actually was sitting down, and he kind of made this realization, that's what believe is. To believe is to, is to set your weight on it and trust that it will be held up. So that's how he communicated this idea. Do you know that just barely enough faith will accomplish what unshakable faith will never will never accomplish, provided it's on the right object? Tiny mustard seed, like barely their faith, will accomplish what unshakable faith will never accomplish, provided the object of the faith is trustworthy. Think about it this way. You want to fly from here to London. I've made the reverse trip. And you do so by strapping on feathers to your body, flapping your arms wildly, and you are full of faith. Another person, how many people are scared of flying in the room? Raise your hand proudly. It's okay. You, you tiptoe onto this air, airplane because you're terrified by it. Who gets to London? The person full of faith or the person with, with mustard seed faith? Tell me, why? Because the object of the faith is what matters. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Number three is that it is for all people. Verse 22, end of it, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Not only is there no distinction in human need, that is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Catch verse 2. I almost always hear Romans 3.23 quoted and almost never hear um, verse 24 quoted. The way the idea reads is this. There is no distinction. Then there's two parts to it. The human need, there's no distinction. Everyone has the same human need. We've all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's also no distinction in the remedy. Verse 24, which says, And are justified by His grace as a gift. Listen to this. Every person that you meet, no matter what they look like, no matter what labels they wear, everyone has the same fundamental human need. They're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. That's one side of the preaching sandwich board that someone might be shouting on a street corner. You know what the back side should read? And they all have the same hope of the same remedy. There's no distinction Every single person, no matter what they look like or what label they wear, has the same fundamental problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. You could never have come to church. You could go to church your whole life. You are a sinner in need of God's grace. Every single person, no distinction, has access and freedom to be justified by the grace of God. This is why Paul says at this opening part in 116, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. That is to those who are called the people of God, and then every other person on the planet. Sweeping, colossal truth. This is offensive. This is offensive to church people. This is really offensive to non-church people who are soaking in sort of the cultural soup of our location and time and place. You're trying to tell me that something, that you know the truth of what's true for me and what's true for every culture and for all of time? I'm actually just reporting it, but yes, there is that kind of truth. And here it is. It's for all people. Here's the prayer, church. Hear me with this. God, help me open my mouth to proclaim this good news of salvation unashamedly. That is the mission we're on, people. To share this. Here's number four. The righteousness of God is graciously Gifted, verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, we all cling to merit or to grace. You can't do, you can't do one or the other. If there's an ounce of merit that you're still clinging to, you're not grabbing hold of grace because grace by definition cannot be earned. The moment you have merit, or think you have merit, it's no longer grace. Does that make sense? So you're grabbing on to one or the other. You may have heard people, in fact, you might be this person who says this, I don't buy all this because of one simple reason. I've tried Jesus, and it doesn't work. 
I've tried this whole Christianity Jesus thing. Some of you, this is part of your testimony. You prayed to receive Christ. You became a Christian. It didn't take. And then something else happened, and now you're here, and it took. What's the difference? Here's the difference. The person who has tried Jesus Christ, and it didn't work, tried Jesus Christ, and didn't understand the gospel. They will. They were still clinging to merit in some way, shape, or form. Hear me. Jesus is not an additive to your life. To make you somehow a little bit better of a person, or more faster, or whatever self-improvement kind of idea it might be. Jesus is not an additive. Jesus invites us to come and to die attend our own funeral and be born again and raised up in newness of life and our life is now in Him completely and totally. That's the picture of baptism, right? We go down in grave. That's going under the water. You cannot survive underwater. We don't stay underwater because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again to newness of life. This is the old person. You're invited to come and die. That's a weird Bible track to give to people, but it might start interesting conversations. Hey, I want to invite you to your own funeral. What? Jesus isn't an additive. He's everything. I want you to stop serving God. Yes, the pastor just said stop serving God. I want you to stop serving God if serving God to you means somehow paying him back. That there's sort of this sinner's debt ethic to you. God, you've done so much for me, I I should really do something for you. Think about it. God doesn't need anything we can bring to the table. He doesn't need it. What could we possibly do to offer to God? Nada, right? Zilch. So stop serving God if that's your mentality. Stop and stare at Christ. If you miss this, you boast, I have great faith. Or you bomb, which is, I don't have enough faith. You boast, I have great works. I serve God. Or you bomb, I don't serve God enough. I don't do that great of works. Stop looking at yourself. Stare at the cross of Christ. Let's go back to tunnel view for a second. This probably has happened. And it's shocking. It would be funny to see. It would remind me of Romans 3 if I ever saw this. You're at tunnel view, and while everyone comes out to that scene and they're all looking at the scene, there is someone with the camera pointed at themselves, taking a selfie, not with tunnel view in the background, but with the tunnel or random people or cars or whatever, and they're fretting over either how bad they look and that their hair isn't quite perfect, or how really, really, really good they look. That would be to miss the point completely of tunnel view. Would you agree with me? Get the camera off yourself. Stare at Christ. Stare at the cross of Christ. When you come into church on Sunday mornings, friends, that might be your song of ascent. Song of ascent where people, uh, these were songs in the book of Psalms that were sung as you prepare for worship. Maybe it's a Saturday morning walk. Maybe it's the drive to church. But you just begin to have this mentality and say, God, would you get my eyes off of myself this week? I know my tendency. I tend to just despair and think, how could I possibly be good enough? It's not about that. 
Help me get my attention where it should be. Or I know my tendency. I tend to walk in and go, yep, pretty much still better than everyone here. Would you get my eyes off of me? Would you help me to stare at the cross of Christ? I'll tell you what that does. In seeing the innocent one suffer in my place, I am left with a sense of seriousness, of gravity to what sin requires and the payment for it, and I'm also left with a deep sense of wonder and gratitude and lightness that what was accomplished in my place could never have been accomplished by me. That way we can say with Paul, that everything we once esteemed in this life is trash. Worthless. Moral achievement, garbage. Career, rubbish. Pleasure-seeking, nonsense. Nothing compares to the riches of this gift of grace. Listen to Philippians 3. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. You don't have that perspective if your eyes are still on yourself. You gain that perspective as you stare at Jesus Christ. Here's the fifth one. The fifth one about God's righteousness is it is infinitely costly. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Two big words here, redemption and propitiation. Let's talk about it. Redemption means buying back. It's a slave term. That's how it would have been understood in this culture. And if there's a buying back, that means that there was some buyback price. And I've wrestled over how to communicate this. I don't know how else to do it than just to say this. This is so familiar to us that it's quite possible that you will miss the wonder of it. So I don't know how to get your brain in a space that just says, God, help me to see this fresh for the first time. Part of, part of discipling new believers, by the way, is letting them see things for the first time. I would go to Disneyland year after year after year, taking these same international students as a college pastor. Do you know why it remained fresh and full of wonder? Because I got to see it through their eyes. The truth I'm about to tell you, when you were first a Christian, if you're a Christian, and you first understood this, blew your mind. Here it is. The purchase price of redemption for your sin is the very blood of the innocent Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let that sit on you for a minute. God, help us to see this fresh. The blood of God is the purchase price for my sin and yours. Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the gospel touches every part of your life, including your sexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 
We are commanded by Scripture a few simple words. Flee sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Anything outside of one man, one woman as husband and wife for all of time. Simple definition. Anything else? Immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Here's what he says a verse later. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, what is the price you were bought with? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we honor God with our body. We were bought with a price. If you are married this morning, I want you to just touch your ring for a minute. Just touch it. This is precious metal. It's costly. It means something to you. Now listen to this while you're touching it. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's redemption. How about the word propitiation? You have probably not used that word outside of church or religious conversation ever. It is a foreign, weird word unless you read certain translations of the Bible. So what on earth does it mean? If redemption is sort of looking at the work of the cross, sort of man word, it's redemption. That, 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 that mankind was bought back with this slavery price paid. Propitiation is turning the lens and looking at the work of the cross Godward. And I want you to think, when you think of the word propitiation, I want you to think of this word, ready? Satisfaction. That all of the just wrath and punishment for sin that sin deserves has been satisfied or absorbed. It's the work of the cross looking Godward. And we looked extensively at that last week, so we won't get into it. But when Jesus says, it is finished, he's saying not only is Christ paid redemption, but wrath is satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Both of those things are happening on the cross of Christ. Here's what Jesus' propitiation means in everyday life. That first lie that slipped out of your tongue as a little kid, and every lie since... Those lustful thoughts that you have that slip in even in the middle of church when I talk about fleeing sexual immorality, that can incite lust. Those apathetic yawns to all those good things you know really are honorable and someone really should do something, but you're just sort of apathetic about it. Those outbursts of anger, those fits of overeating, those raging moments of jealousy and envy. All the things that are just barrages, landslide of evidence against us saying, you are an enemy of God. Jesus as propitiation means this. As he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he says, that's been paid for. That's been paid for. That's been paid for. That's been satisfied. This one is mine. He's been bought with a price. He's been adopted in. She's my daughter. She's righteous and holy and just. It is finished. 
Do you see why we ought to wonder and cry more at church? (laughs) When we gather and sing these truths, church, this is what we're talking about. This is sort of the robust undercurrent that supports pithy little sayings and slogans that can just roll off our tongue and mean almost nothing after a while. God forsakes his son Jesus so that you and I are never forsaken. Band, I want you to come on up right now. We're going to sing a song called The Wonderful Cross. We sing this all the time in here. It's part hymn and part modern chorus. And as we sing this, I want you to see that the cross is not a compromise between wrath and love. Instead, the cross satisfies both of those completely and fully. The cross of Christ was a public demonstration that utterly fulfills the demands of sin and completely demonstrates God's great love for the sinner. You're going to hear some things from this passage that we'll now put into song and sing. I want to read two more verses. And wrap up the way we've been doing, just focusing on what God does and what we do in this passage. Verse 27 says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it not excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boasting and believing are mutually exclusive. Again, this is just so deeply offensive for our carefully crafted identities that we've been working on our whole life before we come to Christ. We can't imagine letting those things go, can we? Go back to the swimmers on the way to Australia, right? I mean, the offer of Christ comes and says, this is where life is at. And one person says, no worries, I'm a three-time gold medalist in swimming. I'm good. Another says, I'm good. I've got loads and loads and loads of cash. Another one says, I am dashingly good-looking. No problems here. Another one says, you know what? People always tell me how charismatic I am and, and how likable I am. I'm okay. Thank you. Another one says, I'm a CEO. And on and on and on it goes. Dead in their trespasses. Now imagine those who got on the boat and have a new life in Australia. Where does the boasting go to? The story that altered their life forever will include this. I was rightfully banished off of the kingdom of Hawaii because I violated the rules not once or twice, but consistently. I was condemned to a punishment that should have killed me. And I want to tell you about this lifeboat that came along and the person who was in the lifeboat. That's where all the boasting would go. All the vain things that used to charm me most, like being a CEO, having loads of cash, having good looks, whatever else it might be, that never enters the story. All boasting is transferred from your previous identity to the cross of Christ. That's where the boasting lies. So, what does God do? Here it is. He offers redemption free of charge, but not free of cost. Man, that is such a rich idea. 
It wasn't cheap, but, it, but, it's, but it's, it's free to you and our gift. What else does God do? He designates Jesus on the cross as the great solution. We looked last week, how could God possibly remain fair and righteous and be viewed as a holy good judge and be loving and merciful to sinners? He's in a quandary. No, he's not. He designates Jesus as the great solution. Where such love and sorrow meet and he meets the demands fully and completely. What do we do? Here it is. Number one, we receive the gift by faith. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, friend, it's as simple as this. I believe. Jesus, I agree with you that I am a sinner. The word repent that you hear a Christian say simply means to turn. I turn from all these things that I used to have as my merit, as my reason why I'm good, and I renounce all of it, and I believe in you, Jesus Christ. That invitation is out to you right now. If you in your heart of hearts just say, God, that's me. I want to invite you. I will be standing in the back. Come and talk to me. Come and find me. Please come and interrupt me in any conversation I'm having and just say, I need to talk to you. I think I became a Christian today. Let's talk about it. You just receive it by faith. Here's number two, is you live accordingly. Many of you made that decision a long time ago. Live accordingly. Sound doctrine is information in action. You worship well when you understand these truths, don't you? You grow in your love and your passion for your Savior when you understand these truths. Finally, here's the third thing. Do not keep this glorious truth a secret. We are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to share. To open our mouth and share. 